Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a consummate real estate professional uh, who has been involved in, from what I can tell, if not all assets, most of them, uh, decades of experience, uh, big projects, uh, not, not, you know, six to eight units kind of thing. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I am very excited because this is going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, he is the head of investments at Heritage Capital Group. He is Erwin Boris. Erwin, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you for having me today. You got it. Um, so before we kind of get into your real estate career and the amazing things that you've done and are doing, uh, what, what is the Erwin Boris pre-real estate story? Uh, do you hail from the part of the country where you sit right now? Or what is the background? Uh, originally from New York. I uh, have an undergraduate degree in accounting. Uh, sat for the CPA exam, did a lot of accounting-related auditing and, and accounting work and decided that the uh, numbers and boxes, that, that's actually with pre-computers when you actually had, you know, uh, you know, four, you know, six and, and 12, 14 column paper. We actually have numbers with boxes. <laughs> it wasn't for me. Uh, and from there, uh, I went to work for, uh, at the time, one of the largest residential owner managers was the left rack organization. They taught me the management side of the business. And so it was, it was very useful in seeing what went into making those numbers and really how hard it was to keep the buildings full, especially, you know, during the downturn here in the, uh, 90s, when the whole financial and insurance uh, uh, sector was laying off uh, as the economy sort of stumbled. And, you know, from there, I'd worked for either owners or, or lenders uh, back and forth over the years. So I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of things that people should do. I've seen a lot of things that I can't believe people did, uh, you know, both bad and, and by mistake. And, uh, you know, we take that into account on, on how, what I look for in investments on a going forward basis. Sounds like a fantastic background being on both sides of that fence. Um, so small, probably the easiest question, uh, the, they're all going to be easy questions, actually, because there's nothing you don't know that I'm going to be asking. But the, probably the easiest one is, where in New York are you from? From Long Island. All right, Long Island. Okay, the island. I get it. Okay. Um, so in that first gig, were you working for that large residential company? Um, and what was the scale of that and where were all the properties? Well, the properties were mostly in the, the New York area, uh, Queens, New Jersey, uh, you, know, you know, Brooklyn, there were the boroughs that had thousands of, of units. And uh, I started at uh, Left Rec City, which was a 5,000 unit, 20 building complex. And yeah, it was interesting. I had to do everything from deal with the federal and state agencies to deal with the union crew and even go to landlord temp court, uh, which uh, really was, a, 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 you know, for lack of a better word, sometimes it could be a circus with the theatrics of the tenants and how they could avoid paying rent for sometimes prolonged periods of time. 
Uh, and at that time, they were, Left Rats were uh, developing uh, Newport in Jersey City. Uh, and so I went out there for a period of time. We had the first four residential buildings and, one of the, and the condo up there. And we were trying to keep the buildings full with the financial downturn at that time. Uh, and so, I, you know, that's what I, yeah, I got to see a little more of what went on in sort of high rise as opposed to your traditional, uh, you know, garden or mid rise apartment buildings, uh, and you know, issues that people had. And also there, we had tax credits, so I got to deal with the NJHMFA on what went into uh, getting tenants approved for occupancy and, and keeping them there. Um, what um, your role? So were you like the head guy overseeing, for example, that 5,000 unit complex? Were you like the, the top guy and had, had a, a staff of people working underneath you? Like what exactly was your uh, role and responsibility? I was just directly responsible for four buildings. It was five, five sections of four buildings each. Uh, and, you know, I had the, the, the 20 uh, union guys that were responsible for the maintenance and the cleaning of the buildings. Uh, you know, we all reported up to somebody who at the time managed the entire complex and eventually, you know, up, up to senior management. But it was my first job as a sort of quote unquote property manager. So, uh, I had a lot of uh, accounting experience, a lot of computer experience and, you know, some of the archaic things that we tried to modernize, like how you order supplies. I, you know, back then we had old dot matrix printers and I, I found the, uh, you know, sort of a carbon paper and it printed out forms on how I was going to order supplies. And they thought that was great. So <laughs> I just had to check the box and fill out how many I wanted. And I, and I you know, staple it to, to uh, a one-page purchase order and sign my name. And it's not like I had to fill it out. Because over the years, my handwriting, like all of us, our handwriting has got worse and worse as we depend more on computers and our, and our thumbs on texting. So it was, it was, it was good. Uh, kids don't even know cur. My, my kids don't even know cursive, by the way, at all. I, I just read something, an article earlier this week that they're thinking about teaching teaching it again. Um, so, but you know, it sounds like like just fantastic background. But it kind of, you you really understand multifamily from the ground up. I mean, you're you're not you're not uh, another you know finance guy who sees the uh, value and you know they. Uh, the 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 value of being in multifamily. So you really, really, really understand it. Um, where where did you then go from there? I guess from there, I went to work for a uh, an owner developer, a good seed development. Uh, they uh, they were builders, and they did management, and they still are still around today. They're still building. They're building down uh, down in the, the Mid Atlantic in Virginia and other places. Uh, you know, I was the controller uh, there. I did mostly accounting, but got involved with you know some of the management issues, uh, and got to see more of what was involved with construction budgets uh, and you know operations of the building uh, and how they finance it. I got to deal with a lot of bankers back then. Uh, you know, as things sort of stumbled in the economy, you had to negotiate with your bankers for you know sometimes relief or sometimes uh, extensions of loans. So uh, I, I got involved with a lot of that. That, that was in the old chemical bank days. They're not around anymore. Um, so it was, it was a really good experience. Mm. Do you, you know, I was talking to somebody this week, last week or something, and they said something that I had never heard before. And that is that 
They really like buying from sellers that built, built the property and then managed the property because then they weren't just building it to sell to somebody else. And so there was more quality because they knew they were going to, you know, because they were intending on keeping the properties. Is that just one person's offhand opinion or do you think there's some merit to that? Well, I think that uh, there's some merit to that. You know, people that, you know, never thought they were going to sell, of course, they put a little more money and, and sweat into it because it was about longevity and how long the asset would last and, and uh, trying to make it easier for them because they were proud of it. Uh, but, you know, as time went on, you know, people became merchant builders. Uh, well, they had two lines of business, some stuff they would merchant build and some stuff they would, they would hold. Uh, and, and then, you know, people would be traders. As values continue to climb, it's hard not to take a profit once in a while. Uh, but someone that's just, you know, even the home builders, they, you know, they, they build to sell. Um, so I guess, you know, you're going to buy it, you know, it's caveat emptor. You really got to look at the construction and, and did they just meet the requirements for electrical wiring or, or you know, and, and plumbing or did they exceed them? And, you know, and that's all part of the due diligence. But yeah, someone that's owned it for a period of time, um, it, I guess it's, it's kind of old school and it, it is your thought to buy from them uh, because you would just assume that it was better quality. Okay. So there, so there is, there is some merit to that. Um, and then what, um, what was your progression from there? And I'm ultimately just trying to get to, you know, what you're doing now, but, but it is such a, a long and varied, incredible. After I left them, I went to my first uh, job in banking. I, I went to work uh, for uh, Apple Bank, which at the time was owned by real estate developer Stanley Stahl, who has you know, since passed on. And uh, they thought that I had a unique background where I was not a finance guy or an academic. I was a brick and mortar person having held a building a brick in my hand. And uh, they realized that because I could walk a different walk and a different talk being in the business, I did a lot of business development. And instead of having to really 100% underwrite a deal by myself, once I, I, I knew the deals made sense. At the beginning, I wasn't the best at getting the, the numbers and the underwriting forms, but they gave me a lot of help because they knew it was the best use of my time to, to keep me out there on the street. And... Uh, I guess in about, what was it, about five years, I had two promotions. Uh, and so I had a great time there. I, I still talk to some of the people I used to work for down at the bank. Uh, and, you know, we did a lot of mostly multifamily, which is what they still do, uh, mostly in the, the New York area in the boroughs. And I really got to see what went into the credit side, uh, not being, you know, having any credit training like some bank uh, underwriters do, but I got to see what went into uh, the credit side and what they looked for, not only on the building operations, but also on, on the people behind it, because the buildings don't write the checks, owners do. And so you really have to be a good judge of character and depending on these people to pay you and not try to renegotiate with you uh, all along. And, you know, so you, know, you meet a lot of different interesting characters. Uh, some people that perform 400% and others just do the bare minimum, but they just want your money. Uh, as, as a lender. Uh, after that, I, I went to, at the, at the time, was uh, GMAC Commercial Mortgage, which is now since evolved uh, uh, into what's known as Bercadia. And uh, 10 years there, I, I, we had a great time. We did a lot of loans. I did a lot of construction lending, uh, office, multifamily, industrial, uh, both debt and equity, mezzanine. 
Uh, we, we did it all. Uh, top 10 origin, originator, three out of the 10 years there. Uh, really had a, a lot of fun there. Built a lot of long-term relationships, both with owners uh, and, and other people that I still talk to that I work with there. Do you have... Um... Do you have experience um, asset managing or property management in office industrial uh, like you do in multifamily? No, I, I do these days in, in, in uh, asset management, a lot of industrial and flex assets. Yes. Uh, you know, that I, I do on a daily basis now. Uh, you know, we bought some assets uh, during COVID. Uh, some were well occupied, some were not. Some had gross leases, which were slowly converting to. Uh, modified gross and a lot of them to triple net. Uh, I have one asset that I, I asset manage where I, I have a 40,000 square foot tenant that we knew was moving out 12 months ago. And now I'm, you know, I think I got, you know, two thirds of that space backfilled already for next year. So uh, it's about making sure that you have the right notice provisions in your leases. And, you know, so, some of the tenants are a little pissed off at me because I have in the leases that. If you're within nine months of your expiration and you haven't approached me for a renewal and you have no renewal options, I have the right to market your space. And it says you will cooperate as I show prospective tenants through your space. And it usually wakes them up when they see people walking through uh, you know, with the leasing agent. And they either know they got to you know, get off the seat and call the owner for a new lease or they better pack up and get out. A lot of people don't read those things. <laughs> I, I, well, I, not my fault if the tenants don't read them. Uh, you know, some of the owners don't read them too well either. It's like we're, they, we're looking at a property on an acquisition now. And the, it's not that they're a mom and pop, but it's, you know, this, this flex industrial is not their main business. Supposedly, they have like 200 of these gas station convenience stores. And I'm like, well, how do you let a tenant you know, pay holdover rent for nine months. But then the tenant, how do you pay holdover rent for nine months? And it's a big tenant. You know, <laughs> how do you do that? So I guess both people have to read the lease and then somebody's got to monitor it on both sides is really what it is. Uh, so you need, there's things that you see. It's like, and I, I talked with some of the guys I work with that one day we should like to have the housewives of New York or Beverly Hills or New York. We should talk about real estate stories because some of the things you wouldn't believe. I probably would. I just, I, I, uh, I, I think it's, uh, especially with entrepreneurs and, and big picture guys, um, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that people don't tend to details. Uh, and you're probably talking about broader than that, but it, it, you know, who knows? Maybe I would be surprised. Um, so I came into this conversation uh, with you today, Erwin, with a misunderstanding in terms of kind of what your day-to-day -day is. And I confused you with Paycar, uh, the uh, family, and you, 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 but no, you're head of investments for Heritage Capital. And so I'll just expose my ignorance and go, I don't know the distinction and maybe fill me in what my misunderstanding was to... to Make sure no, the audience I, and I know. know. Sure, sure. Uh, in the middle of COVID, uh, you know, Heritage shut down and uh, the pay cars looking for someone to really run asset management to say they'd been investing in real estate for 20 years, but it's not their primary business. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm there in their office and, you know, a couple of days a week, we're riding the ship on a lot of assets, recapitalizing some of them, making 
partners toe the line. Uh, you know, they've acquired some new assets. Uh, but, you know, I have a lot of personal investments with the, the Heritage guys, having been in and out of their office over the last 20 years. Uh, and there's, a, a, you know, a trust and estates involved on, on the Heritage side that I sort of weigh in on where those assets get invested. It's for a, a, a principal who passed away for his uh, family. And so, uh, you know, I sit on the investment committee here. And, and so I, I see a lot of different things. Both uh, families are in the uh, logistics space. They seem to like that. Uh, you know, the pay cars do want a lot of multifamily and uh, they look at multifamily, but it's all about cash flow. Uh, you know, I, I, I forget who said it, but you, know, you can't eat IRR. And I've been asked to, you know, triage a lot of deals for, for a lot of people that call me and say, what went wrong with this investment? I don't understand it. And when, when you look at some of these things, uh, you know, it, it's like, well, you know, let's look at the model. Some cases, they didn't have a working model. And I said, well, if, if, if anybody wants you to invest with them and they're not giving you a live Excel model, you could stress, run. Uh, and even some guys that have raised, I won't talk about names, but guys that have raised billions of dollars, I, I say, can you send me a model? They send me a PDF. I said, what do you need? What do you need my assumptions for? I said, I want to see what you're doing. You're telling me that you're buying from a gorilla who owns hundreds of thousands of units. You're going to take occupancy from 88 to 92 and move the rent to 20% in three years. How are you going to do that? <laughs> so, and they wouldn't send me the model. Uh, but I'm looking at a lot of these older deals and you know, it was really hard to screw up a deal the last, uh, the last 10 years, except for the last 18 months when rates started to move. All the, all the leaky ships came off the bottom of the ocean and, and floated. So people got lazier with the amount of due diligence that they did over time. You know, if you did three deals that worked out, you figured the fourth one's going to be fine too. But the one thing I noticed that attracted almost every apartment investor was they're looking at an equity multiple and an internal rate of return number. Some got a little confused when it said 8% preferred return or 9% preferred return. They thought that's what they were going to get on an annual basis. No, that's just a metric for calculation. I mean, the deals that, that I do, uh, I talk about contractual cash flow. And it's, it's what is the going in cash flow at closing and how do we think we're going to increase that with the business plan over time? And um, so we have a lot of high net worths, uh, even some institutions, and they love the cash flow. And we talked about selling some of the assets. They said, we're going to replace 12% current. Uh, you know, one's what? It's like getting married. If you like your wife, what are you going to get rid of her for? Uh, the hardest thing in real estate is to get into the deal. Uh, so uh, you, you sort of keep it. But, you know, cash flow is more important than the IRR. Because the higher the current cash flow, the more dilutive to the IRR at the back end, especially if you get a hold of a much longer period of time. And you can't replace it. Um, so I find that people were um, looking more at, at what the, you know, how much they were going to make and not necessarily on the cash flow. And especially when you hit a speed bump in the economy, like where we are today, cash flow helps. You know, if you get laid off from your job or, there are other, or prices rise and there's something you want to buy, and you're getting 10 or 11% current on, on your other investments, you can use that cash either to reinvest or, or to provide yourself with some luxury goods. Um, so, we're, you know, we're an interesting point in the cycle now where interest rates have caused a lot of sellers to take a step back and say, hey, you know, maybe I should have sold two years ago, 
but maybe I should also take some money off the table. So we're finding cap rates moving out and uh, it, it's working out well. There, there's so many opportunities so on really high cap rates today. It's, it, it's a question of having enough capital. Um, so that's one thing I'm, I'm working on. I'm going to try to figure out how to raise a fund in you know, the first quarter of next year. Uh, because if you have a few hundred million bucks and you can buy on a nine cap, who needs desk? I would just hold it all. Let me let me let me just uh, make sure. So so, uh, Paycar and Heritage are two separate entities altogether. They're, They're two separate, two, entities, two different families. Two, two different families, okay. yes. And, and the assets, some of the assets that the Paycar family owns, Heritage, who has a management platform, actually manages for them. Okay. I and they they are they are looking at some you know co investment opportunities together. Uh, because sometimes deals are too big uh, for one one person. Uh, but you know, I, I try to be the master connector. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a deal junkie at heart, but the deal's got to make sense. And so, uh, you know, sometimes it's better to have a couple of slices of bread than you know, be, be, be a you know, piggish and try to get the whole loaf. Yeah, and wind up with nothing. Um, okay, so um, you know. Part of me wonders if, you know, that the reason that people were touting IRR and equity multiple is just because the market was so exuberant for the past, call it five years, whatever you want to call it, five years, six years, what have you. There just was no cash flow because the prices were too high. So I guess now you're saying there are so many opportunities right now, uh, cap rates or, or the, their higher cap rates maybe a nine cap. So I guess the question is, uh, where are you seeing those opportunities, uh, both uh, from, uh, you know, what markets and uh, what vintage? Um, I guess not. nothing that's brand new. First of all, we're not seeing those in multifamily. Actually, actually yeah, there's, there's one opportunity as like on, on an eight cap. I saw someone who offered me down in the, the Permian Basin in Texas. Uh, you know, some stuff that's closer to the border. Uh, also, and uh, it's not something. And they're older, older vintage properties, so I, I really don't know how much capital they're going to need in, in the immediate or, or or intermediate term for a hold. But I'm seeing mostly these in in uh, flex, industrial, even office. Someone offered me a, a an office building on an 11 cap, uh, 94% occupied, and and I'm, I'm quite happy that we don't have any office exposure uh, anywhere. Uh, because I, I think office in uh, like New York City, San Francisco, um, part of to, to hire people, you have a choice to be hybrid or place or a choice to hire, take a job where you have to sit at a desk, you know, seven days a week. What are you going to do if the money's the same? So employers, I think, will renew leases, but they'll probably renew on a smaller footprint. Uh, and then people that could be in the suburbs don't need everything in midtown Manhattan if, if uh, they have enough senior executives that live in the suburbs. They might have a you know an office footprint somewhere else as well. But the industrial in, in a lot of secondary locations serves a purpose. Tenants need to be there. Uh, they don't want to be on on Main and Main and a brand new forty foot clear building and have to pay top dollar if they can you know live with you know, twenty six feet in an older building uh, and it works fine for them. Uh, the one thing we've also learned is that. It's a people business. You know, where do the employees work? Uh, how far is their commute? So we spent a lot of time talking about the, your staff. Where do they work? How far do they commute? And things like that. 
that tells me whether you can relocate or not. But in a lot of these secondary locations, the buildings have always been full. They always will be full. Uh, industrial influx is, is pretty much a game of nickels, dimes, and quarters. And so I would rather not have very long-term leases because if you, you look at some of these triple net uh, uh, REITs that have these 15 and 20 and 30-year leases as the uh, industrial rents really spiked over the last seven or eight years, that's a lot of rent that they're not collecting. But then they may not want to deal with the turnover. Let me, let me uh, t- take a half step back. Where's the 11 cap office building at 94% occupied? That sounds pretty darn compelling uh, in how, ma- how many tenants. I don't remember how many tenants. There have been, been a few of them uh, I, I've seen. Uh, Arizona, California, there was one in Texas. It's just an office. People that have office are afraid. Uh, or, or maybe... This, they believe that they have one tenant that's half the building and they've heard they may relocate or consolidate or things like that. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I think some of these office buildings will probably be fine. I've looked at a few of them, uh, but it's, I'd rather not own office because when you look at what happened to some of these apartment deals that went bad, it's because sponsors underwrote income at 5% growth and expenses at 2 and with the increase in taxes and insurance and labor, expenses rose at 12. And they just couldn't absorb it, especially if, they, if the lender didn't require a full-term interest rate cap. And then they're, they're really, you know, bailing the boat out really fast. And a lot of times, you know, there's a capital call. So by looking at what we do is, 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 is net leases or double net or triple net. Or we did, I did one deal. Uh, where we're actually at the, what I call a bond lease. I have no building obligations, not for the roof, not for the landscaping, nothing. I just have to collect rent and pay the mortgage. Uh, and so I, I think that's really a better way to look at it. I'm not, you know, it's not sexy. It's not something you want to put on the corporate brochure, but, you know, the, these older assets need love too, and, and they can still earn and make you a lot of money over time. What, what was the nature of that building? Was that industrial? Which one? The one you just described. Yes, we did a deal. We acquired a uh, 275,000 square. It was a sale leaseback transaction. And uh, I made the, the tenant, they know the building. Uh, you know, even if I had an engineer in there, there's always something I'm not going to find. I said, look, you've been here for 40 years. You're responsible for the building. With uh, sale leasebacks in general, this is just kind of a, a broad question is that uh, there, there are some funds. There's one in particular. There's a sponsor that just does sale lease back. Um, and they have a fund and they've been fairly successful over the, actually a fairly short period of time, quite frankly, sure. maybe the last few years. Um, and, you know, my loose understanding is that those tenants often have been acquired by another company. There's a recapitalization. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the acquirer just doesn't want to own the real estate. Uh, that's not the business they want to be in. But, sure. but there's all kinds of configurations that could pose uh, maybe higher degree of risk where it's not a, a sale leaseback. So I guess what's your, what's your just take? And ultimately, you want to own, you know, and because it, it's all based on the credit of, of the tenant, but, but a lot of people are, are, are circumspect and they just want to make sure they own the best real estate they could possibly own as opposed to... So what, what's your 
philosophy on that? Well, the, the, the sale leaseback we did down in Georgia, it wasn't based on the credit. The, the, the story behind that tenant is they were, it was an old family-owned business. They supply uh, publications and software to public libraries and universities and, uh, and, and other uh, uh, people. And they were sold, the founders sold the business to a private equity firm. And during COVID, senior management bought the, the business back. Oh. And use some really highly leveraged debt from an investment bank. And so it was easier for them to delever themselves by selling me the building uh, and paying rent than it was for them to keep paying the, the interest on that uh, bridge debt on their business. And, uh, you know, their financial statements weren't great. But, you know, being that it was sitting on 85 in, in Georgia, and I, I know the Atlanta and, and the Georgia market fairly well. Uh, it was a nice long rectangular building uh, with excess land, and I knew that if, if it wouldn't take much to divide the building up into say two or three spaces, even if I had to punch a couple of more doors in the back, uh, I could get another dollar and a half or two dollars a foot. So actually, the lender said to me, they're well, looking at all the financial statements. I had quite a few years of audited statements, and they say to me, I don't understand what you see in this building. I, we don't understand the transaction. Well, you know, what do you see in, the, in this deal? And I said, where am I buying the building at $70 a square foot built? Do you know what it costs to build? And they, this, this is a major bank. And uh, I said to them, look, we're building. It's going to cost 125 to 140 just for the, the, the industrial building. The office pod is, if I build an office pod, is 200 a foot. And they looked at the real estate. They looked at the, at the sales comps, and they said, "All right, we get it. <laughs> we we finally get it." Uh, so it was interesting that they they got the transaction and and we closed. But for a while, they just didn't understand uh, what I saw in the building. And for us, you know, we we understood the real estate. So sometimes it's about the building being in the right location and how fast do you think you could retenant it, and where, that's really where the upside is. You know, not that I want, I wish them any ill health, but you know, when you have a nice rent and you think, take, take, take your body weight and you're going to compound it at 3% a year for 15 years, you're going to get pretty heavy over time. <laughs> so, uh, that's the way we looked at it. It's like, all right, I'm going to get 3% increase every year. I have no responsibility for the building. The investors will get, will get 9% the first year. Actually, I just sent out the distributions this morning. Uh, they're all looking for the next deal now. And, uh, and next year, they'll get like 11. And it'll, it'll, it'll keep going up. Um, and if they go out of business, we have money to retain it. We always overcapitalize the deals. I never like to have to call anybody for money for anything uh, after I close. So some people look at the budget. The source is used to this. I said, what's this? this I said, it's rainy day money. The tenant improvements leasing commissions. I know it's a 15-year lease, but God forbid they go out of business. Uh, I don't want to have to tell you, uh, Mr. Investor, you have to give me X dollars. Irwin. So there are some, go ahead. <laughs> there are some interesting opportunities out there and we're just trying to take advantage of them, you know? Uh, so, uh, because I think when the, you know, when you hear all the talk about Fed rate cuts, some people say only twice next year. Some people say maybe some guy says six times next year, which isn't going to happen and it's an election year. Uh, but when rates come down 200 basis points, they'll be 
less distress and it'll be more competition uh, for assets. All right. So to ask the abundantly overly simplistic question, because I'm in, kind of in the slow class, uh, you may have figured that out by now, but okay. So what you do for uh, Heritage, it sounds like you are the guy, you are running that portfolio, the buck stops with you, and you're just out acquiring opportunistic deals, asset class agnostic, raising money and running those deals, and you are the guy that's in charge of that. Is that accurate? Yeah, the, 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 you know, the principal is very, is very active, and uh, we, we just see a lot of deals. You know, I, I know them 20 years, and so there's a lot of off-market stuff that comes in. You know, people know that I, I've never been the high bidder on any deal. Well, I shouldn't say that. Well, if it's, it's a 1031 exchange, that's another story. We send you protecting the you know, the tax basis, but it's always you got to make your money on the buy. And right now, especially, there are a lot less buyers out there with the ability to close. The institutions who have all this dry powder aren't even shopping much. So when you say the principal is involved, so you kind of work with, uh, and is that principal singular or plural in terms of like day to day? Are you kind of you know, uh, I don't know if there's an office that you go into or if you work mostly remote. What's the structure of, of the business and the, and the office? Well, the, the, you know, they, they run a management platform where there's about 7,000 square feet under management, uh, multiple states, uh, different kinds of, you know, flex, uh, flex, uh, which is a, a lower ceiling height. You know, I call flex the multifamily of the industrial world. Right, because you know you can have 150,000 square feet with eight tenants or 15 tenants, and uh, the best thing was everybody paid during COVID. No one wanted, even if you were a 5,000 square foot tenant. You know, we, you know, we there were a couple tenants that you had to work with there with PPP funding for the timing, but no one wanted to go home and see their family and work in their garage or their basement anymore. <laughs> uh, and quite a few came and extended their leases uh, early, so. There's a lot of day-to-day stuff goes on. There's a lot of buildings that I have personal history in because of the acquisition. And so even the people that really manage them on a daily basis, you know, call me and and say, do you remember the story behind this of why this happened or why it didn't happen? And, you know, I I keep notes. I have my own own cloud of uh, deal files and I go through my notes and, you know, we try to decipher it uh, because, you know, my money's in the deal as well as investor money. So uh, my personal money. So I, uh, I, I enjoy uh, being involved. Uh, I, I, you know, one thing I learned is it's okay to be passive, but you should still ask a lot of questions. Where I, I know some investors, you know, you, you know, we send out or I send out a, a financial package, uh, which is quite thorough. You, know, you get everything from a balance sheet, an income statement, general ledger detail, bank statement. And people are like, what is all this stuff? I'm like, it's a financial statement. What am I supposed to do with it? I'm like, you're supposed to, you know, have it in case you have any questions. Well, how do I know what on the property? I just read the body of the email. If you don't understand anything, you got the... And yet there are deals that we're in uh, where I'm lucky to see an income statement uh, on a quarterly basis because that's just the way that, you know, the partnership agreement is worded. And some, some you know, syndicators have gotten away with that. Some are just more transparent than others. Which I think is the right way. So you, so you guys do your own deals, but you guys also invest in other deals. 
we do uh, we do our own deals. I have invested in other deals, but most of the deals I I invested in the last ten years are deals that are are, are are our deals. And then you are syndicating, right? So you guys are a sponsor. Correct. Okay. Correct. You guys do you take retail money, or is it all institutional partners, or what does that look like? We've all, it's been mostly uh, institutional and, and high net worth, you know, accredited investors, but, uh, you know, they're, they're larger checks. They're, uh, you know, 500,000 million dollar checks. Uh, it, it's not accredited where it's $50,000, which, which is accredited, but some people could say it's also retail. Uh, we're not set up to that, nor do I want to necessarily be set up for that. I find that the, oh, you know, the stories I've heard is, is that the people who write the smallest checks are the ones that ask the most questions. Oh, we're going to be in town. Can we have a tour of the building type of thing? Uh, or, or, or my brother-in-law is a, is a landscape business. Can you hire him to do the landscaping and, you know, in the neighborhood? And you, and you get all sorts of stuff. The best investors ask, ask the pertinent questions. Uh, like I sat on a call, you know, there's a capital call on something and someone asked me to sit on a call with them and, and I said, look, you really don't have a choice. You know, the, the, unfortunately, the mortgage is coming due. You got to buy down the rate a little bit. Then you'll get your money out as, as you know, interest rates come down. But, you know, it's better to, to throw a little more bad money after the good money because you got to protect, the, you know, the money that's in there already. So people at least ask, ask the right questions on, on some of these things. And most of the investors, you, you distribute, you send out the financial statements, as long as they're complete, as long as you're, they, they believe you're being transparent, then we are, then nobody ever asks any questions except uh, uh, how come it takes so long for the accounts to produce a K-1? <laughs> That's what I get out of most of them. Either that or, or uh, when's your next deal? Because I have three friends that want to come in on the next one. That, that, you know, we've got a lot of that also. Yeah, you guys, you, you know what you're doing. Are there great deals in Flex right now? There are. If, if you know, if, you know, if you have a reputation of being someone who closes, the brokers chase you. Okay. And, they, 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 you know, it's like, I, I always say to them, look, I'll look at the deal if it's a widely marketed deal, but call me when you don't have any other buyers or call me when uh, it falls out of contract. And just what, 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 what prospective buyers need to know is just because the broker's giving you a price range or guidance, as they call it, Bid with your own conscience. Don't necessarily let someone lead you to the trial and tell you you got to drink out of this one and leaning to the left or the right. I thought that um, Flex is largely uh, across the, the spectrum, north of 90% occupied pretty much in most parts of the country, if not even 95% and it's red hot. So are there great deals just because of debt? Issues or why are there great deals in flex now? Yeah, part of it is is being driven by the debt, cost of the debt. Sometimes it's a partnership interest. We I was awarded a deal, uh, sort of flex slash life science uh, in the Midwest, and it, you know I said to the seller, "It's a great deal. Why are you selling? Look at the cash flow. Look at the upside." And he goes, "Well, you know, we have a lot of partners who are in their late seventies and early eighties, and you know the the hold is up and." You know, even though I'm the general partner, we could force everybody to stay in. You know, then we know these people forever, and and enough of them decided that it's time to do their estate planning or go their own way, and and so we're selling. And um, then there's some deals that I just think have been really mismanaged uh, over time. 
when I look at a, a deal upstate New York and, and you have the seller who owns it. I don't know what he did, but the, most of the building is empty, but he's a hoarder and he's living in there. And I know it's a fire code violation and the, the, you know, the building's empty and the broker keeps calling me. So you don't want to buy it? I'm like, I want him out. Well, you got to give him a, a year at a dollar rent for his space. I'm like, it's not happening. <laughs> That's not happening. I said, I'll, I'll wait for the, his space, even though it's sprinkled to catch on fire where the building is condemned to get him out. So, and then, you know, so there, I've seen a few partnership situations where the guys have owned it. It's mixed use. It might have a little traditional office, a little industrial, a little flex. And, and they're all older gentlemen and they've owned it for 10, 12 years. With another one upstate New York, we, we made an offer on our, unfortunately, during due diligence, one of the tenants told me they wanted to give back 7,000 out of their 40,000 feet. And they went to valuation. So uh, I'd still like to buy the building, but at a lower number because I see more value in the operations than uh, you know, the, the seller and the way they're managing it. Mm. Uh, so there are, there are plenty of opportunities if you look and you be a little creative in your future thought process of what you can do to the building. Uh, in some jurisdictions, they, they, the Ability to put solar on the roof is really uh, the taste for itself. Like in parts of New York State, you, between you know, the uh, the New York State and uh, the federal tax credits and the NYSERDA grant, especially if you're in a rural area, USD, USDA grant money, you know, like 65% is paid for uh, between grants. And then you got tax credits, the accelerated depreciation, you've got your money out in two years. And uh, it, it also brings a way to lower the operating expenses of the building by generating a lot of your own power. It was an article, I don't know whether it was in the journal or Business Insider or one of these news services I have that talked about how they think a lot of people are going to be putting solar on the roof and selling the power to their neighbors on the residential side. When I look at my, even I look at, you know, I look at the electric bill for my home, I'm like, God, I, I'm going to put solar on the building because I'm, I'm getting tired of this. Uh, either that or I, I got to put motion sensors in all the bedrooms. So if my kids go out to the rooms, you know, they don't leave the light on. They go to school all day. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of things you can do to reduce your operating expenses and control them better. Uh, like in, in the industrial buildings in the warehouse, you have all the modern LED and it's all on sensors. If an area of the uh, building isn't getting used, it's dark. And even though it's a triple net lease, it's saving the tenant operational money. Mm. And I just think a lot, of the a lot of the tenants are smart enough to appreciate that. So when a tenant moves out and we have to renovate or upgrade the lighting, we're automatically putting the motion sensors in. So is there not... Okay, so, so Flex and you're eloquent and, and, I, and I get what you're saying. You're, you're a very, very uh, experienced in my sense, a sophisticated operator, uh, you know, you, you know how to size up a deal and see what the opportunity is, uh, maybe where others aren't. At the same time, it's my understanding that, that Flex is so incredibly red hot that people are, that it's still highly competitive to acquire it. But are you saying, well, not as much as it was because institutions aren't deploying money. Uh, I understand people want uh, certainty of close. So is it is uh, that just the competition on the acquisition side is just thinned out, and uh, even though it's a hot asset class, the buyer pool has shrunk. You know, a few things. One is right now the buyer pool has shrunk. Uh, second thing is I know when uh, institutions are buying 
pools of assets for aggregation towards an exit that the flex may not fit their business plan and it's a kickout asset. That's how I bought, I bought one uh, kickout asset at Flex uh, down in Atlanta from a major, a major fund. It was a kickout asset. And unfortunately, I, I, I taught them a little too much, so now they lease them up before they sell them. Uh, so, so for them, it's a kickout asset. For us, it's a cash flow deal. So just, just, I've never heard the term kickout asset. Is that, liter- is that like literal? Like you're kick this one out of the portfolio? Yeah, yeah. If you're exited, you think you're going to upreach or sell to a sovereign or IPO and you're going to market it as a pure industrial uh, REIT uh, or industrial exit to whoever your ultimate investor is, then your business plan is saying everything's got to be 30 foot clear, minimum square footage of X square feet. And if you have these 18 or 20 foot tall ceilings, uh, with really tiny tenants in it, you know, it's a kickout asset. You had to take it as part of the pool, then you know you just get rid of it. You believe that there are fantastic opportunities right now. I totally understand that, and you are more bullish than a lot of people I've spoken to. Mo- most people, the sentiment is that we're in the third inning, broadly speaking. Is your sense that we're like in the seventh inning, or do you think do you think there's better and better deals to come over the next couple of years? What's what's your general take on the market? I think there's always a good deal to be found if you look in the right places for it, uh, regardless of the interest rates. Like like even when you know two three years ago, I had no problem finding great deals. You just look in different places, different markets, different sizes. You know, I'm not competing for 100 and 200 million dollar portfolios. So you know, you change. You know what you look for instead of looking for blue, you look for orange or things like that. So you could always find a deal if if you want to do a deal. But the big players, a lot of them only want primary markets or maybe secondary markets. I think the yield it might be in secondary and tertiary markets, depending who the tap is. What inning are we on? Yeah, I don't know. I think that with the wall of maturities the next two years on mortgages, uh, depending on how fast interest rates get cut, that'll determine really how much distress there is. I'm looking at uh, one transaction and I, I need a large equity check. So, so I, I'm calling a few institutions and uh, I, I went back and forth with somebody from uh, Canyon uh, Partners and they said, oh, we just raised uh, $5 billion or whatever it was for distress. Distress opportunities. I said, that's great. I said, you're going to get a lot of distress. He says, you think so? I said, yeah, you and all your buddies who have also raised similar or bigger pools, you're all going to give each other distress that you can't get the money out. (laughs) (laughs) So are you okay uh, buying in tertiary markets? Yeah, it depends on the market. Like we bought, I bought a deal in. Uh, outside upstate New York, outside of Syracuse. I think it's a great deal. It's paying 10% current. I got some excess land there that um mitigating some wetlands. I just have to, you know, I, I, there was some mitigation done. I just have to clean it up and we'll see if we can build on it. A lot of excess land. You know, and then we bought this thing and here we are two years later and Micron's going to build a plant up there. Dumb luck. But you know what? It'll always be full. No one's built in a lot of these upstate markets. And especially now, I'm seeing more opportunities on higher cap rates. Some people still remember what they could have gotten two years ago and they're frustrated they can't sell. But there's a lot of 
you know, in smaller markets like that where you can find things. If you're a cash flow investor, if you're a syndicator, a pure syndicator that is a 5% equity and you get your money out in fees in the first year and you're dependent upon promote to really make your money, then those deals aren't for you. But if you're a family office that's interested in cash flow plus appreciation plus the, 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 the depreciation for taxes, those are the good deals for you. They'll always be full. No one's, no one's turning up and, you know, when you're buying at 70 bucks a foot and, and what it costs to build, no one's building anything new to take your tenants. Hmm. What would you say your biggest mistake has been and what did, what did you learn from it? Well, one of my biggest mistakes was, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't try to raise a fund like two or three years ago, four years ago when everyone was doing it. I could have done a lot more deals. That, that's a big regret that I have. It's like we were, I was okay trying to raise the equity on a one-off basis. I didn't have a problem getting it. But I think if I had a pool of capital that was discretionary, uh, I, I could have bid a lot harder. Uh, I could have done a lot of different things. Uh, and I think one fund would have led to another fund, would have led to another fund. But I'd have a lot more assets under management. Why didn't you do it? It wasn't something we were focused on because, you know, we, we were very selective on deal flow. I didn't have a problem finding, you know, partners uh, on a one-off basis. If you were to invest with somebody else and like, so put yourself in the position of a, of a you know, institutional investor or, or a high net worth investor, uh, would you have an inclination towards investing with, with a sponsor that does funds versus single assets or would you be agnostic? It depends on, on the asset class and what else is in the fund. You know, th- there are pros and cons. If you're in a single asset, you're shielded from bad assets in the fund. But if you're in a single asset and that one doesn't perform well, just, you, know, you don't get the benefit of the performing assets in the fund. So it, 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 it's not a black and white answer. Some people don't like investing in funds and they don't like raising funds. So, so, so they're investors, uh, you know, limited partners that don't like investing in funds. And then there are sponsors that don't like, don't believe in, in raising funds because then it's, it's kind of a different business altogether. But the overarching sentiment that I've heard is then you've got like the, the clock is ticking. You've raised this money and now you need to deploy it and you then all don't have. Don't have yeah. as much you have, discretion. You have subscriptions. You have subscriptions or, you know, or, pl- or pledges for the fund. And after a while, if you haven't deployed the equity, they expire. Or, or people start taking their money back. They see that it's not, not being invested. But I think also with my business plan, the way I really focus on the ability to pay current, I think that my fund would probably perform better on a cash flow basis because I'm not a to- total return you know, investor. I'm not investing in something that's binary, either you win or lose. I speak at a lot of conferences over, over the last you know, 10 years and someone said to me, what's your idea of a bad investment? I said, I got 8% a year for 10 years and I got my principal back plus the tax benefits. There was no back end pop, but I, I beat the treasury by more than you know, two to one and, and I got the, the, you know, the tax benefits. And people are like, well, that's not so bad. I'm like, well, absolutely. So uh, you know, what, what I, the only thing I know for sure is what my leveraged or unleveraged cash flow is on in-place rents the day I close. Everything else, you got to be really lucky. If anyone tells you it's because they're smart, good luck. And there's an old story that somebody once told me about. They're two, two brothers, lucky and smart. They're walking down the road and they get really tired. And so they're trying to figure out where to sleep. 
right on the major highway. And Lucky says, you know what? I'm going to sleep right on the double yellow line because this way the truck will see me. It'll go around me. And Smart says, what are you, crazy? You're going to get run over. So Smart decides, you know what? I'm going to sleep all the way on the shoulder. So I'm out of everybody's way. P.S., middle of the night, some tractor trailer comes down the road, sees Lucky lying on the line, swerves to the shoulder, kills Smart. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've never heard that one. <laughs> so, it, 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 you know, you think about it, you know, it, it, you can be smart about some things, but a lot of your success is really luck or just the conditions that you did not create. Yeah. Yeah. And, some people with their egos will tell you, I did it. I did it. I won't, we won't talk about Orange Jesus, but, but you know, the orange guy. So, uh, you know, uh, with Who's the ego. That? Orange, <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. Orange Jesus. Oh, 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 The guy that might become our next president. Either that or wear a number. Or to toss well, up this unfortunately, one. I don't think that that's a whole other conversation we could have. I, I know that, but, yeah. but you know, they, they, you know, but, you know, so we don't, I don't think I have an ego. I do the best I can. I try to make some calculated uh, assumptions. And by focusing more on the cash flow, I, I think, you know, the tortoise beats the hare. I think in the long run, I'm okay. Could somebody have made more money by, by generating more IRR? Yeah. But mm. I, I think that I'd rather have the cash flow because there are other things I can do with it. Who can argue with that? Listen, uh, I'd be lying to say, Erwin, that this was not an animated conversation. I very much appreciate it and uh, respect your perspective, your experience. And uh, fantastic, man. You're a smart dude. And I hope to do this with you again. Lucky, lucky, lucky dude. I'm lucky. Ah, you're smart. You're a smart and lucky guy. I very much appreciate it. And I hope to do this uh, with you again uh, next year. No, I appreciate your time. I look yeah. forward to it. You got it. And I'll talk to you very soon. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye.